0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Gosh, is it my turn again? Gee, it seems
1: like we just did this 24 hours ago. Well, I guess we did that, do this uh, 24 hours ago. In fact, that means we do it every day, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, when you reach a certain age, you forget these things. <laughs> Welcome. Great to have you with us. It is August 1st. That makes it a Thursday. And at 5.05, Craig Roberts in your ear as we are welcoming you to another edition of Lifeline here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. Addressing issues that impact your life and your world. All right, we got a lot of stuff going on in today's program. I say that every day, and we have stuff going on in the program every day. Just as a just as a note to you, <laughs> uh, coming up a little bit later on in this first hour, Pastor John Jester is going to join us in studio. We affectionately refer to him as the Paul Harvey of Christian radio. He'll drop by for a little visit. We've also got uh, Brian Johnston, who will update us on a new law that is taking effect today in New Jersey. New Jersey's version of California's so-called right-to-die law. We'll talk about the implications of that a little bit later on. But I want to begin tonight with an update on a story that we've been following. In fact, just last week, we gave you an update on the plight of a professor at um, Moreno Valley College, Professor Eric Thompson, who, uh, in the course of his work in a... um, A social science and sociology course uh, discussed a number of issues related to hot topics of the day on marriage, gender dysphoria, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently, somebody took umbrage with all of this. And even though it wasn't religious talk per se or um, compelling in any way on any of the students, somebody took umbrage with it, reported Professor Thompson to the school administrative authorities who, in spite of the fact that this man had received Faculty of the Year Award not once but twice in the little over uh, 10, 12 years that he's been an employee there, uh, they decided to show him the left foot of fellowship. And uh, that, of course, went into mediation. It's gone back and forth and back and forth. And most recently, the Riverside Community College District had put in a petition to reverse a decision by an arbitrator who said, You've wronged him. He should be reinstated. They took it to court. Now we've got some good news to bring us all up to speed. Is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus, counselor? As always, great to have you on the program, and we particularly like the days when you bring good
2: news. <laughs> I like those days too, Craig. Um, I will tell you, yeah, this has been a real long, hard fought battle. Uh, you know, the arbitration hearing alone took two weeks.
0: Wow. with witnesses
2: and testimonies and uh, cross-examinations, etc. And we were hoping it was going to be done and over all the evidence on the table. The, d- the decision came down. And they went and appealed that the college just, it was, is so indignant on not allowing this wonderful professor to come back because he promotes critical thinking and provides both perspectives uh, dealing with issues and class discussion. So, because they either he's actually a, what a professor should be instead of just an indoctrination, uh, you know, person, uh, they uh, appealed the case to the Riverside County Superior Court. Uh, we defended the case there. Uh, Michael Pfeffer did a great job, and we got the decision back. And the Superior Court judge affirmed the arbitration decision and said, yes, he was wrong. He should have his job back.
1: Now, in the process of all of this, you know there there are some damages here. This man has been embarrassed. there have been uh, losses of wages and things of this sort. Is there any financial culpability that the college district is now going to be facing on the heels of this very bad decision?
2: yeah he will uh, uh he will be entitled to be right where he was uh, had he not been fired financially. Uh, we have Pacific justice have been representing it without charge uh... at this point there are there's no attorney fee or reimbursement at all in this case because of the way the uh... contract employment contract was set up uh... that said craig uh... it looks it's not guaranteed it looks like this college Merino valley uh... community college it looks like uh... they are probably going to appeal it to the appellate court they are so indignant on purging professors like him, uh, from their college campuses, they, they said, quote, there's only one correct opinion on these issues and, uh, anything else is not allowed. It, it's, it's really scary to see that in a free society, uh, taxpayer funded college like this. So, uh, we're right standing ready for that appeal will probably happen and then we're gonna, we'll argue and take this case up to the appellate court and, you know, we'll take it to the Supreme Court if necessary. It's, it's that important to defend professors like him from being completely purged from our, all of our universities across the country.
1: Well, and you know, what's particularly troubling about this case, as you say, this, this seems to get every time you think there's a victory and, phew, wow, that's over with. They, they rejoin with, with yet another threat or another court challenge. What's particularly disconcerting about this is not the trampling of the First Amendment rights of Professor Thompson. But the chilling effect that this has on other university professors who were now sort of scared into submission and I wonder if at the end of the day that's the real point here because from what you've shared on this program what I've read about uh, Professor Eric Thompson there was nothing that was discussed that was so over the top egregious that everybody recoils in shock and horror and and you know with the lit uh, torches and pitchforks demands that he be uh, dismissed but but rather almost seemingly the intention here is to not just silence him but to send a message so that to a certainty. Anybody else on staff at Moreno Valley College has been told, don't get out of line, don't uh, don't dare express anything that runs contrary to the agenda here, because if you do so, this could happen to you. you think that's part of what they're trying to do here?
2: Oh, definitely. Definitely there. Uh, That's why it's so important that we, at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, make sure every one of these professors is fully and completely represented Without charge, all the way through the process. Because it is, uh, very grueling, uh, to, um, be isolated and ostracized, uh, simply because you want to be professional and not ideological. And, uh, particularly because of the fact they know he's a Christian and, uh, it provided the, uh, different world views and not just, uh, the world view that, uh, that they wanted. So, Uh, It's very important that they all know that we're here to represent them, and we will all across the country.
1: Well, and unless I missed a major memo somehow, it was at least my understanding growing up when I went to school during the Stone Age that we were sent to school and went through a course of studies to enlighten us and to certainly, you know, reveal more about the world to our young, malleable minds but also that we were taught the skills of critical thinking and how to decipher, how to discern, how to uh, draw conclusions based on education, based on one's moral values, things of this sort. It seems that this continued paradigm shift that began in the 1960s that would suggest that, no, no, we don't send this kids to school to learn how to think. Rather, we're going to send them to teach them what to think, which now goes from an institute of higher learning to simply uh, a place where there's indoctrination taking place and a little more, apparently.
2: Right, totalitarian countries have these kinds of institutions. Uh, the United States should not, and that's not what we were founded on, and, uh, and more is what that's what education was founded on, and uh, it's very dangerous. So um, please pray for our client, and um, we really appreciate the of those out there as we take on these cases in the
1: future well we certainly appreciate you standing um, on behalf of uh, not only professor eric thompson but but everyone out there and you know this the shoe can be flipped on this this is not just a matter of saying well he's uh, issuing one particular viewpoint or another viewpoint it's that the free expression and exchange of ideas ought to take place of all places mm-hmm. in the environment of campuses of higher learning so that students can be confronted with the realities in the world and the opinions in the world around them and then hopefully guide them to draw their own appropriate conclusions. But if somehow you're suggesting that there's only an agenda that's going to be promulgated through education and the children are not going to be taught again, as I said a moment ago, how to think, but rather simply how to regurgitate what they've been told, well, then quite frankly, it's a big financial experiment gone to waste. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More details available on the web about his fine organization at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 515. You know that sound. That means it's time to dance. No, (laughs) not a very catchy tune for dancing. Uh, That means it's time for a look at traffic. Let's do the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And
0: now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back in the saddle, uh, the saddle, S-A-D-D-L-E, back in the saddle, as we continue on 20 minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. Joining me now is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. Brian, much to talk about on this Thursday afternoon, but I want to start by having you comment on something. This is a battleground that you and I were enjoined in. Joined in my goodness, probably 25 years ago um, when back then the Hemlock Society was promoting the so-called Death with Dignity Act here in California. In those days, it went down to defeat. We know, of course, in recent years, California has passed its so-called uh, uh, right-to-die bill. Now I understand that just today, New Jersey's so-called right-to-die law takes effect. Um, give me your thoughts, if you would. Um, as we see more and more states head in this direction and begin to embrace this idea of a doctor or physician-assisted suicide, just how precarious of a slippery slope are we headed towards?
3: Well, it is not just a slope, it's a precipice. Once we say that medicine could and perhaps should be used to take a human life, that is what created medicine it was literally that prohibition it was the hippocratic oath which goes back nearly three thousand years that's what defined the medical profession It's why we've honored doctors all these many years an appreciated member of society that's been taken away and what folks don't realize and again i i can feel free on a christian station to say this but a lot of times, people are, are guided by their emotions, and they think their emotions are the soundest form of judgment, and even Christians, and that's what's scary, that a lot of folks don't think things through, and they're guided by how they feel, and I know this, I've been at many deathbeds, I was on the Board of Examiners at nursing homes in California, It's been a long time it's in nursing homes, they're never fun places, but to kill someone, even if it's if it's ostensibly in the name of compassion, is to kill someone. And once you begin to do that, uh, as one argument is, well, it's only if they have six months left. We don't want them suffering those six months, but if that's the case, what about that person who has six years that they're not going to be cured, that person who, who perhaps they're their condition is so extreme, but it's even longer. Why not, why not kill that person? That person who's a, who's a quadriplegic. And of course, we know they have been killed simply. They're not, they're not terminal. This makes them terminal. And so we have gone off a precipice, but really it's motivated by emotions. And sadly, I have found in, in, in many circumstances, it's Christians who should think this through and should be advocates for the medically vulnerable. Uh, compassion literally means to suffer with someone, to bear their suffering. That this is not compassion. Killing them isn't compassion. That's dismissing them. And it's very, very important that we saddle up and realize we're in a battle of ideas, and that our society is at stake. You know what's
1: what's interesting about this, Brian, is that, and and you know we perhaps have, have all been there or maybe even known. A family member or friend that's been there, and you've got some experience. We don't talk about it much, but um, for quite some time, you were a California commissioner on aging here for our state. So you've you've got a great deal of familiarity uh, with the 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 broad subject matter here. And I you know I, I recall a number of years ago a very dear friend of mine um, whose mother in law uh, was not in good shape, and the woman was approaching her nineties. Um, there were health concerns and problems at every turn, and uh, the, the caregiving was beginning to really weigh heavily on both he and his wife. The resources unfortunately were not there to bring in any outside help, so the two of them dealt with everything, and it, it ranged from you know doctor 's appointments to shopping to having to care for the very intimate personal hygiene of this elderly woman. And at one point, I think out of pure frustration, he kind of quietly and candidly expressed to me, he said, you know, I hate to think this, but sometimes I think, God, if you just please take her because of the amount of stress and realizing that there was really no quality of life for her. Well thinking that, feeling that emotion in those moments during those difficult times, that's one thing. It's when you take it to the nth degree and say, oh, here's a solution to get mom out of the way, and we won't have to deal with all this. Um, I think all of us can understand perhaps a level of frustration when things get to that point. But the fact that government has now codified a means by which – people and perhaps individuals of of significantly less um, integrity and and, uh, life value who could look at a thing like this and say, you know what, this is a pain. We don't need to deal with this. Look at all the money we're wasting. That inheritance money could be put to use. We could buy a new house, send the kids to school, all this. The, The fine line between compassion and caring and helping get somebody, quote unquote, out of the way is a very fine one indeed, isn't it?
3: It is, and, and in terms of those circumstances, I, I've been around this for a while. I strongly recommend, because it is arduous, not only in my own family, and on many families that have cared for an elderly relative and gone out of their way and taken them into their home and done home hospice, even in that circumstance, as you pointed out with your friends, it's very important to have what's known as respite care. And respite care is actually care for the caretaker. And that's very important. If you look at the history of assisted suicide, it often is a family member that feels emotionally wiped, just wiped. And if this person is just done in, it'll be over. It'll be easier on them, easier on me. And those emotions are the most dangerous. If you think about it, um, hopefully none of us are going to be killed Hopefully all of us will die of natural causes. But if you are killed by another individual, if you are in a situation, the most likely scenario, and police officers and prosecutors will tell you this, it's not going to be in a drive-by or in a situation like Gilroy. That's an extreme example. Most killing is emotionally based and is by someone you know. And that is a tragedy, but it happens. Fights, domestic squabbles, um, emotions. And emotions are so powerful. We have to be aware that when we react out of our emotions, we're not being ruled by our higher nature. Uh, As Lincoln used to refer, at the end of the war, he said, let us call upon the angels of our higher nature, as he was trying to bring about equity, a lot of Northerners were emotionally upset about what had happened in the war and wanted revenge on the South. But that actually applies to our personal lives. We have to not just in into our emotions. And that's why you don't want to kill the vulnerable. That's why this has been against the, not just against the law, it's been against medical ethics and social ethics for centuries because it's it's too easy it's too easy, particularly once it's made legal. You know, in California, I just hate to bring it up, but since you're on this, people don't realize, yes, assisted suicide was legalized. But then, last year, the legislature went further. And the legislature said, it's no longer against the law for an heir to be involved in killing. Wow. Whereas, there had been a a slight distancing, that, and, of course, that's a direct, linear relationship to ulterior motives. Yeah, I
1: would say no, no conflict of interest there, huh? Boy, wow. Talk about uh, the, the inability to avoid even the appearance of evil.
3: Wow. Yeah. No, it's, we're, we're living in a cultural change. And, again, because we're in a Christian station, I believe it's, it's the Christian's duty, not just to go to church, not just to be a good guy or a good girl. We are the stewards of reality, of culture. I believe that what we have inherited in Western civilization is under direct assault right now. And unless the Church, and that's us as individuals and the Church corporately, equips itself to equip others to understand why human life is valuable, that's, if you go back, and we've talked about this before, but the basis of Western civilization is really quite simple. It's the assertion that human beings are not mere animals, that there is something very special about a human life, and that protecting innocent human life is very important. That's why we equip policemen with guns and badges to protect the innocent and to restrain the miscreant. So when those distinctions start getting blurred and lost because of emotions and feelings, We are losing the guidelines of civilization, and we're in the midst of that right now. Right now, we are in the midst of losing our civilization if we don't become the salt, if we don't help others understand why true compassion is to comfort and care for but never kill the vulnerable
1: brian johnston western regional director with the national right to life committee brian as always we appreciate your time and your insights more information available by the way uh, at this critical juncture staying on top of these kinds of stories and their impact on your life critically important online at nrlc.org think national right to life committee nrlc.org 531. As we thank Brian Johnston, let's check in traffic wise and uh, see what's going on out there on your Thursday ride home.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We are indeed back at 535 here on your basic Thursday afternoon. Great to have you back into the conversation. Joining me now in studio, we affectionately around here call him sort of the Paul Harvey of Christian radio. you hear his insights and musings several times a week right here on KFAX. He is the senior pastor of Watsonville Christian Church, Pastor John Jester. Pastor John, good to see you again. Good to see you, Craig. Listeners you. are thinking, John Jester, John Jester, I recognize, wasn't he just on the radio? Well, yeah, he's on the radio practically every day here at KFAX. We had have Pastor John on by phone a couple of weeks ago, and um, I don't know whether we didn't feed the squirrel, <laughs> or or maybe Joel, my engineer, ran out of nickels and they, they cut the call off. Uh, but in any event, we thought let's uh, let's get you back in when we don't have the the um, the telephone lines between us and uh, less uh, less likelihood of technical challenges uh, to uh, to visit a little bit. And I'm and I'm delighted you came back in. Uh, some folks are familiar with the history of. The church and and your background in what had been the Worldwide Church of God, and uh, this is one of those amazing stories because, sadly, oftentimes in in Christendom, if we head down a wrong path, um, if if there is some error that slips into our teaching, um, the church historically has found itself in a very difficult. Position of wanting to repent and stand up and say, oops, you know what? We got that wrong. And to then say, we repent of that error and get on the right road. And what is absolutely God-honoring about the story of – and older listeners will perhaps be familiar with Herbert W. Armstrong – um, and the Worldwide Church of God. The, the amazing thing about the story is that there was a critical juncture at which church leadership said, you know, I think we got a few things wrong here, and to actually stand up and repent and apologize and say, you know what, um, we've made a mistake, but we're going to right that wrong, and we're going to head down a God-honoring, biblically faithful path. And that certainly has been a rare but very encouraging story inside of sort of the history of Christendom. You don't hear that story very often for a major denomination to make a change like that, but uh, the church certainly did.
4: Yes, we sure did. It was quite quite an upheaval at the time, but uh, such a great blessing just to have our minds open to see the truth and be able to see it from the Bible. See, herbert w armstrong used to tell us all the time don't believe me unless you see it in your Bible. blow the dust off your bible and don't believe me until you see it and, and amazingly we took his advice we blew the dust off our bibles and our minds were opened and we saw we weren't no longer to be in the old covenant we're now in the new covenant times and uh, it was a very exciting time but very tumultuous time we lost about 85 90 95 percent of our people and our income uh,
1: yeah that, that kind of an experience that you know it, it unfortunately becomes a, a a a spiritual upheaval and i suppose at the same time it, there is sort of a a reckoning where there's what else do we want to call it but maybe the, the separation of the wheat from the chaff and i and i don't mean that in the sense of you know saints from sinners uh but sometimes we get so entrenched in our belief system or in our traditions that we find it difficult to release that. And, it, and it, maybe it's as equally true for a denomination it is as it might be even for just an individual who who comes to Christ maybe later in life, has had a lifelong belief system that they've lived and practiced. Maybe it's not based in, in theology or anything that they're taught, but this is just how they've come to believe about life. And then... Yeah to come to Christ and realize that there is a process involved in sort of putting off the old ways, putting oh, off yeah. the old man, yes. and embracing the new. And that, that process of sanctification is not an easy one.
4: No, it's not. Very, very difficult. But I think the exciting thing is when God opens our minds and we can see it in his word, that is so exciting because otherwise we wouldn't see it. We'd be blinded. Um, and I think of the Apostle Paul he was trying to destroy the Christian faith. He was trying to wipe them out. We can relate to him a lot because we were like that. We thought the others were off track, and we were on track. And he
1: certainly was convinced that everybody else was wrong and that this whole Christianity thing was absolute heresy and how dare you claim to be man-God when there's only one true God, and we know that from from the Pentateuch and uh, he kind of set himself up as a major enemy of Christianity early on.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And then he had the transformation, and I've, I've heard and read that maybe he spent three years unlearning what he learned, maybe out in the desert and Arabia by Jesus, teaching him before he was ready. But we've had the same thing, and we're just so thankful that God has opened our eyes to see things. And we think about Romans 14, where some consider one day, special others consider every day alike so we realize maybe god hasn't opened everybody's mind we don't know if they haven't been willing to look at the bible and and ask god is this true or not or maybe he just hasn't opened their eyes yet like the apostle paul um certainly he was very well educated reading studying scriptures and everything but he couldn't see what he couldn't see until it was his time and i think about the book of galatians where it said uh, paul was called from birth but when it pleased god to reveal jesus to him Mm -hmm. that was a different point in time I think, wow, that's quite a, very insightful. So we don't really pass judgment, as you said, on uh, people that keep a special day. Uh, if they believe that what they should do, they should do it because uh, well, whatever is not a faith is sin. Uh, but we're so thankful God's opened our eyes to see things and, and just being able to, to rejoice in the new covenant. It, it gives us so much more freedom than we had in the old covenant.
1: Indeed so. and And, you know, I mean, the Lord certainly understood that if mankind had in him the capacity to keep the covenant, there would have been no need for Christ because we would have been keeping the covenant. But we proved virtually since day one that we don't, in fact, from day one, we don't follow instructions well, and we have a difficult time keeping his laws. And, and, and I have to wonder if in God's wisdom, he looked at this and said, my creation is spending so much time spinning their wheels, trying to keep my laws, failing miserably at it, And in so and during the process, what's really being affected here, what's really getting damaged is the ability of the Lord to carry on relationship with his creation, because at times we're separated from God by sin. Well, we're struggling to try and keep his commandments. And so there's that sense of guilt that we have, That that, that those glimpses into our own sense of nakedness or shame. And it talks about in the Garden of Eden, you know, they suddenly realize their nakedness and, and quick, hand me that fig leaf, you know. <laughs> and so in God's wisdom, the idea of saying, you can't handle this, I'm going to bring someone into the picture who can. And that through his work on the cross, the necessity for sacrifices will end because the ultimate sacrifice will be given. And that then through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross, that will cover our sins. And once having accepted and believed, that now the beautiful thing is, yes, those that love him should keep his commandments, certainly, uh, but now living in, the New Covenant, living in grace, hopefully we're able to spend more time walking in fellowship with him because these stumbling blocks that we know we can never keep the law were no longer in the way. Do you think that's true?
4: Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. The freedom. And I think of uh, Philippians 4.13. Apostle Paul said, I could do all things through Christ who Mm -hmm. strengthens me. He had to come to the realization he couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep the law, but he could through Christ in him. And yeah, it gives us such freedom, and the, the grace that we've learned from the new covenant is just it's just incredible.
1: Now, that said, let us quickly touch on a point here that some might say, well, are you guys talking about that sloppy kind of grace where once you accept Jesus, now all things are covered, and so it really doesn't matter what you think, how you live, you can go back to, um, you know... Uh, going to church on Sunday and, and living like the devil Monday through Saturday. And, and no, we're not saying that at all. We, what I think we are suggesting is that his grace is sufficient to cover us in the moments that we do slip. But at the same token, you know, Paul talked about working out your salvation and this notion that this this sanctification, while the pathway is instantaneous and done on Calvary all those years ago— that the process of becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus, the old man slipping away, so to speak, that process of sanctification takes time, and it's a, a, a pathway experience where, yeah, you're going to make a judgment error, you're going to slip here, you're going to be tempted there. But all of it, if done in the spirit of wishing to serve him and surrender to him, that little by little... Um, We become day by day more like him and in that process more sanctified. And then suddenly after a while, keeping the law is not something that you feel forced to do. It's something that you delight Mm -hmm. in doing because you recognize how that that pleases the -hmm. master's heart. Absolutely, yeah. You do it because we get to and we want to, not
4: because we have to.
1: That's a lot like – sharing our faith isn't it yes and and i want to spend some time talking about that after the break because um there's oftentimes this notion that um either witnessing is only for certain people the experts you know well you're an evangelist you're called to do that that's your job i'm not called to be an evangelist or that idea that well you know this idea of talking to people about Jesus that's okay for folks that are have a greater sense of self confidence that's just not for me and and somehow we think that this is something that uh, should only be left to certain individuals within the church that are the experts um, not rec- recognizing that that sharing our faith um, is something that we get to do and we should do with great delight, and that sometimes I think we try to overthink it Mm -hmm. and in the process settle for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a bit about that when we come back after the timeout. If you've just joined us. Pastor John Jester in studio. He's Senior Pastor at Watsonville Christian Church and, of course, he's heard several times weekly here on KFAX. We've invited him to come in studio just to share a little bit. If uh, you are perhaps new to the Bay Area, looking for a church home, maybe in particular you're down in the South Bay region and would like to check out the church on Sunday mornings, they meet at the Watsonville Women's Club Building. That's a historic building in downtown Watsonville at 12 Brennan Street, and uh, they we have a pre-worship service prayer meeting, and then following the worship service, there's fellowship and snacks, and you can get more information online by going to W-A-T-C-C, think Watsonville Christian Church, right? W-A-T-C-C, Watsonville Christian Church, W-A-T-C-C O-R-G. Let's take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation with Pastor John Jester as Lifeline continues. All right, we're going to get a look at traffic for you here, 546, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: On the web, W-A-T-C-C, think the abbreviation for Watsonville, Watsonville Christian Church, W-A-T-C-C dot O-R-G. That is the website address for Watsonville Christian Church. Lots of great resources there, information, directions to the church, where they meet Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Watsonville Women's Club Building, 12 Brennan Street in Watsonville. Uh, there's also an entire page of resources, including um, many of Pastor John Jester's um, inspirational thoughts that you hear uh weekly here on KFAX, so we invite you to check that out. And by all means, if you're new to the Bay Area and in search of a new church home, good place to check out Watsonville, Christian Church. We were talking, Pastor John, uh, both during the break and, and, uh, and before the break about the, this notion of some people uh, being hesitant to share their faith. Um, some feel as if uh, they, they're, they're perhaps compelled to do it, but they don't feel like they're very equipped to do it, or they think it's somebody else's job. And I think oftentimes those attitudes are, are, are formed by a significant lack of proper discipleship in really understanding what it means to be a disciple Mm -hmm. and what it means to make disciples. Do we sometimes overthink um, the matter of sharing our faith? And I ask that question because there are some people that almost seemingly take the attitude it's either somebody else's job or – They approach it like selling vacuum cleaners, going door to door, and you knock on the door, and they answer the door, and if you sell a vacuum cleaner, you were successful, and if they don't want the hose or the vacuum, you were a failure. And maybe it's the same thing, too. We think that we go to somebody, we say, do you know about Jesus? Let me tell you about the four spiritual laws, and if they will immediately say, oh, yes, absolutely, I repent, pray for me, at that moment, we kind of feel as if we've failed and we give up on them.
4: Absolutely. I, I think I, one thing I pray for all the time is sensitivity to God's Holy Spirit. I think when we really do that we, we'll know we're prompted to say something or not say something. And I go back and evaluate myself at times and say, should I have said something, Lord, or did I say too much? And I think I think we just learned to make disciples by doing it. You know, Knowing when to say something, we could sense it. Somebody going through a hard time, we just say, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you or I'll have my, my church will be praying for you. And I think I think we can sense people we have god's spirit god will give us that sensitivity one to say something else uh, one to say more one to say less and i think we do it by practice just, just by doing it we learn by doing it
1: D- does the enemy sometimes trick us into thinking that we're ill-equipped to do it because we think well gee i i'm i'm not really good at memorizing scripture and what if they ask me a question i can't answer and so suddenly rather than taking the risk to say gee, I don't know, but let me call my pastor and find out, or let's go to the Word and get the answer, we feel as if somehow this is all about us, we don't want to be a failure, so we say nothing at all.
4: Absolutely. I think if we realize that how much Christ has meant to us, we just share that. What has he done in our life? How much better is our life now that we know Christ Before, compared to when we didn't know Christ? And that, our own personal testimony, is incredible. Now, what has he done for us? How has he affected our life and made our life better? You don't have to know every single scripture on there, and I think just saying, like we said, nobody knows the whole Bible. Um, I know Billy Graham has said that you know he read the Bible umpteen times, I think once every year, and said there were still things he didn't understand. Well, we're all going to be like that. And just I don't know, but you know, I'll try to find out. But
1: I think you make a valid point because if we think about our own faith experience, and I, 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 as you were sharing that, I was thinking about the influences in my life that were broad and varied, and some were um, shallow, meaning brief. Others were a little bit deeper. I don't think at any point in the experience that led up to my making a decision that there was ever a um, master of divinity uh, theological expert Uh, who came equipped with multiple versions of the Scripture and a strong concordance to go with it, uh, that in a moment sat down and said, I'm here to answer all your questions. I mean, I, I think for most of us, if we just think back on our own life story and conversion experience, we'll begin to realize that God used various sources to speak truth, challenge us, open our eyes, and it's the accumulation of all of that Mm -hmm. that eventually leads to us to make a decision for Christ. So maybe if we think of it that way, it takes a lot of the pressure off of us, and now suddenly instead of doing nothing, if we have the attitude that we make ourselves available at the time in the moment to pray, to share as the Holy Spirit leads us and realize that ultimately it is the Spirit that convicts of sin, not us. And I think if we if we understand the way the roles really are designed to play out here, it takes the pressure off, and then at the end, we will actually become more effective at witnessing as opposed to less effective if we dispense with this idea that if I'm not an expert, I just can't do it.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think another thing very helpful is sharing other people's experiences that we know that are going through what they're going through. And sometimes we, if we can meet those two people up together, that's ideal, mm-hmm. but at least we can tell them, look well, we have good friends that have gone through what you're going through. And, you know, we can have them call you or talk to you. Or, but this is what they happened, and we, you know, we prayed about it, and this is what happened, how, how their prayer was answered and their life became better. And I think sharing not only our own experiences, but all the other experiences that other people have had as well, uh, that are spe- specifically if it's what they're going through and we can relate it to what we know somebody has gone through, the very same thing. I think that could be very inspiring to people.
1: There's also, I think, a very important um, spiritual law in in God's realm that takes place here. I think of the passage of Scripture where we're told that they were overcomers by the power of the Word and the power of their testimony. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... It's one thing to be able to spout off chapter and verse from the top of your mind and be able to walk a person through um, every aspect of what would go into sharing the salvation message from a, a, a Bible verse standpoint. But there's also much to be said for somebody who can just say, you know what, at the end of the day, let me tell you how God changed my life. I remember sharing a story recently about Uh, my experience with cancer and saying you know uh, going into the experience I I would have never thought this but coming back out of the experience I say thank God Mm -hmm. that I went through the experience Um, wouldn't wish it on anybody not a pleasant thing to go through Mm -hmm. but to see the ways in which God time and time and time Mm -hmm. again showed up Mm -hmm. and granted his mercy and his protection and even in the moments when you think boy I don't know about this to see god suddenly in his grace bring something or someone to bring mm. comfort mm. and to then realize boy when when he when he says that We're under the the, the protection of his wings, the wings of the eagle, right? When he talks about Lord caring for us so much as he cares for the lily of the fields and counting the very number of hairs on our head, though for some of us the job for him is getting easier. (laughs) But when you begin to realize that and then see how that applies to your own life experience and the way that the words on that page are true for you, you've seen them played out. That now suddenly this is not just, and I love it when people say, you know, this I know for the Bible tells me so. There's a lot to be said for that. But I think what you're talking about, Pastor, is even taking it to the next degree where you say, yes, I give mental assent and acknowledgement to what Scripture says about this topic, but I will also know this, as I say from my own case, in the case of miraculous healing. How do I know that God's in that business? Well, I've seen it throughout Scripture. But I can also tell you, I know that I know that I know because it is my direct personal life experience. When you can express that and sharing your faith in that fashion with somebody else who's right now in that moment, in the valley, in the pit, in the gutter, in the valley, and be able to bring them a sense of comfort, I think we would be amazed to see that God can use us in reaching others in a very powerful way if we just let him.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Where the word really comes alive because you've lived it. He's been there. He's answered the prayers. It's been a miracle. And and personal testimony, I don't think anything can be beat from that. You know, you really know God has been there and what he's done. And sharing that with other people is just so automatic.
1: Living the word is one thing, but having the word in you... Uh, can you stay for a few more minutes? Yes. I, I want to have you address that because I think particularly from from, from a position to someone who, who proclaims the word from the pulpit every Sunday – uh, to learn how important it is that we have the word living in us and exactly what that means. I just want to spend a, a moment on that topic. Pastor John Jester is with us today in studio, senior pastor at Watsonville Christian Church. More information about their ministry online at watcc.org. Think Watsonville abbreviated, W-A-T-C-C for Watsonville Christian Church dot O-R-G. This brief timeout, we'll get you updated on some headline news. Look at traffic, though, first. Here's the latest from the KFAX traffic.